This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah Ashadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah Hayya Alhamdulillah, <laughs> ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له في الخلق والأمر ونشهد أن محمدًا عبده ورسوله المبعوث إلى الأسود والأحمر المنعوت بشرح الصد ورفع الذكر وصلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه الذين هم خلاصة العرب العرباء وخير الخلائق بعد الأنبياء أما بعد فيا أيها الناس واحد الله فإن توحيد رأس الطاعات واتقوا الله فإن تقوى ملاك الحسنات وعليكم بالسنة فإن السنة تهدي إلى لطاعة ومن أطاع الله ورسوله فقد رشد واهتدى وإياكم والبدعة فإن البدعة تهدي إلى المعصية ومن يعص الله ورسوله فقد ضل وغوى وعليكم بالإحسان فإن الله يحب المحسنين وادعوه فإنه مجيب الداعين واستغفروه يمددكم بأموال وبنين أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم فقالوا على الله توكلنا ربنا لا تجعلنا فتنة للقوم الظالمين ونجنا برحمتك من القوم الكافرين Ten years after the message and the mission of the Prophet ﷺ had started in Mecca one of the first and foremost of the believers, who was also one of the firmest and most devout and committed 
of the followers of the Prophet ﷺ was none other than his best friend and his close friend and confidant, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. May Allah be pleased with him. But 10 years after the message had started, the mission had begun. 10 years after serving in the trenches and standing by the side of the Prophet ﷺ, through the th- first three years of the more private preaching of the message amongst close personal circles, then after that four years of public preaching, which resulted in ridicule and persecution and oppression and torture, followed by three more years of being outcast, ostracized, excommunicated, boycotted by their own people, their own community, their own society. Ten years of suffering and sacrifice. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu comes to the Prophet ﷺ with a very heavy heart and requests permission from the Prophet ﷺ to leave Mecca. And this was very difficult. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is past the age of 50 at this point. He's 50 plus years old. He has lived the first 50 years of his life in the city of Mecca. That's where he was born, that's where he was raised. That's where he married, that's where he was raising his own family and his own children. Everything that he knew and everyone that he knew was in the city of Mecca. And more important than anything else, he had found the truth in Mecca, Islam. He got to know the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah in Mecca. And he, came, he comes to the Prophet on this day with a very heavy heart to ask permission, to request permission from the Prophet, peace be upon him, to be able to leave Mecca and migrate to Habasha, Abyssinia, East Africa, where there was a community of Muslims who had gone there and escaped to East Africa to be able to seek refuge there and escape much of the torture and the oppression and violence that they were subjected to in Mecca. So Abu Bakr comes to the Prophet and says, grant me permission to be able to go and take up residence over there to be able to escape the very difficult circumstances in Mecca. And you have to understand, a man of the faith, the conviction, the strength, the fortitude of Abu Bakr, wasn't so easily scared away. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu had nearly been killed on multiple occasions. One particular incident talks about how Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was beaten near death. And he still had, he had permanent scars on his face from that public beating that he had received on that one occasion. He was unconscious for a couple of days. He had deep wounds and scars on his face. He was nearly killed on that day. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu tells the Prophet ﷺ, I just don't see any other course of action but for me to leave my home, Mecca, to leave you, which is the last thing that I want to do. But I don't see any other option. The Prophet ﷺ, understanding what Abu Bakr had invested, what he had done, what he had sacrificed, the Prophet ﷺ gives him permission. The narration tells us that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was probably a day's journey outside of Mecca. 
He had, his, he had some stuff with him. He had his bags were packed. So he was carrying some stuff with him. And he was about a day's journey outside of Mecca when he runs into a man by the name of Ibn Ad-Daghina. Ibn Ad-Daghina. Ibn Ad-Daghina was not from Quraysh. But he was the leader of a tribe who were affiliates of Quraysh. Quraysh had an affiliation with another tribe and he was the leader of that tribe. He was the most powerful man of that tribe. And because of that relationship, he, he was considered also a very influential, powerful man even in Mecca and Quraysh. Because Quraysh did not want to ruin its relationship with his tribe, therefore he wielded a lot of influence and power in Mecca itself. And it's actually documented about this man, that up until this point, for the first 10 years of the Prophet ﷺ's mission, preaching and teaching of Islam in Mecca, he was a very staunch opponent. He categorically disagreed with the Prophet ﷺ in terms of his message. He didn't like this, this, this message that the Prophet ﷺ had. He didn't like the fact that so many people were taking up, you know, this new religion, what he called that they were following Muhammad ﷺ, that they were leaving the religion of their forefathers. He really did not like this, and he did not agree with this, and he was very opposed to the spread of Islam. So we have a couple of things we know. This is a leader of his people, he's a leader of his tribe, he's a very powerful and influential man in Mecca, and he's actually part of the opposition to Islam. And he sees Abu Bakr anhu. Bags in hand with his luggage, leaving Mecca. And he says, Ila aina ya Abu Bakr. Where are you going, Abu Bakr? And he says, Akhrajani qawmi. My people have forced me to leave. My people have forced me to leave. They've left no other choice but for me to leave. They've come after me time and time again. I fear for my safety. And that's at the point where it's better for me at this point to leave. And he says, no, 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 no. We can't. We can't have that. I can't let you leave. And then listen to his reasoning and his logic. He says something very profound, very powerful. He says, لا يخرج مثلك ولا يخرج. Someone, of, someone like you should not leave, nor should that person be allowed to leave. Someone like you should never leave a community. And someone like you should never be allowed to leave a community. And he elaborates, he explains what he means by that. And he says something very beautiful. He says that you help the poor, the needy, and the destitute. وَتَكْسِبَ الْمَعْدُومِ you're a family man. You're a role model for, for people on how to maintain family relations. You look after those people who are deprived, disenfranchised in society, and you go out and make sure they're okay. You uplift those who have fallen. The people that have fallen through the cracks of society, you reach down and you lift them back up. And you are constantly involved in every good cause in our society, in our community. 
I cannot let you leave. Because if good people like you are allowed to leave, only bad people will remain in society. This is a non-Muslim. And his story goes on to tell us, he did not accept Islam before he died. And in fact, he was very opposed to the message of Islam, the, 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 the faith-based aspect of it, where he could not let go of his idols. He didn't like the Prophet ﷺ inviting people to one God and one deity and leaving the idols. But even he cannot deny the fact that Abu Bakr is a man who is very valuable to his community and his society. He is an asset to his people. He is an inexpendable part of the community. He is necessary for the well-being of the society. He can't deny that fact. And he says, you're going to come back with me to Makkah. And he's like, I told you, I have to leave. I'm not safe there anymore. And he says, no, I personally will escort you back into Makkah. I will take you there and I will give you my protection and nobody will lay a finger on you. And the narration tells us that he brings Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu back into Makkah. By now the word had kind of spread that Abu Bakr has left. And when they see Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu show up again, they're like, what is he doing back here again? He takes Abu Bakr to the Haram, to the Kaaba, where all the leaders of Quraysh, Many of them were people who were involved in the public beating of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. He leads him back in there and he says, everybody listen up. You know who I am. You know the power that I command. The influence that I wield. I am personally granting my protection to Abu Bakr. Violating his dignity, his personal freedom, his individual rights will be a violation of my dignity and my honor and you will answer to me. Anybody who messes with Abu Bakr, that person has effectively messed with me. He grants him his protection. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu returns back to Mecca and takes, continues his residence in Mecca and stays by the side of the Prophet And the story goes on from there. But the point I wanted to make today the specific point I want us to key in on is that this man is, he completely disagrees with what the Muslims believe in. From a theological perspective, he disagrees. He does not accept Islam. He's not affiliated or cooperating with them in an official capacity in any way, shape, or form. In fact, he's part of the opposition. But what is it about Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, a believer, a Muslim, a role model for believers and Muslims, what is it about him that makes him so valuable, so beneficial to his people, his community, his society, that is majority non-Muslim, that this man who is a leader of the opposition says, I'm sorry, but I cannot let you leave. We cannot afford to have people like you leave our community. I still disagree with you. I still don't agree with what you believe in. And you don't agree with what I believe in. But I am forced to admit the fact that you are beneficial to our community. And I cannot deny that fact. And I will extend my own personal influence to ensure your protection 
As long as you don't leave our community and you continue to be the source of good and benefit to our community and our society. That's Islam. That is Islam realized. That is Islam manifest within the life of a Muslim. We as a community today, especially as a minority community, we have to grasp this fact and this reality. Islam is not a PR stunt. Islam is not a disclaimer or a press release or a press conference or a photo op or simply a billboard or a pamphlet or a website. Islam is the living, breathing realization of Allah's will, the lifestyle of Muhammad Rasulullah which is beneficial to all of God's creation, not just all of mankind, beneficial to all of God's creation that manifests itself within the life of a person. That's Islam. And we have to be very, very careful and conscious of this fact. That what we say, what we claim, what we preach, what we proclaim, what we would plaster on a billboard, does that correlate? Does that connect to? Does that coincide with how we live our lives or not? Or are we a walking, talking contradiction as a community and as families and as individuals today as by calling ourselves Muslims? This is a reality that we have to grasp. And we have to understand this reality. There's a beautiful dua in the Qur'an. There are some du'as, some supplications that Allah teaches us Himself. That are very powerful, very meaningful. And if we were to understand them, they literally would change our lives. They would change the way we live our lives. There's a beautiful du'a that Allah tells us about in the Qur'an. He talks about the faithful, the believing people of the past. فَقَالُوا عَلَى اللَّهِ تَوَكَّلْنَا They said that only upon Allah have we placed our trust completely. رَبَّنَا and they, they ask, they pray, they supplicate, they make dua to their Lord and their Master. They say, our Lord and Master, the one who created us, sustains us, provides for us, maintains us, protects us and guides us. The one who has given us Islam. La تَجْعَلْنَا فِتْنَةً لِلْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ Do not make us a fitna for people who do wrong. For the wrongdoing people, do not make us a fitna for them. What does that mean? Linguistically speaking, in the Arabic language, the word fitna comes from a root word, which basically means a test and a trial. But what's very fascinating about the word Allah used in this dua, in this ayah, in this dua, in the Qur'an, is Allah used a word that is called the mustar, fitna. And the interesting thing about the, the mustar, a word in this particular form, this type of a derivative in the Arabic language is that يُسْتَعْمَلُوا أَوْ يُفْهَمُوا بِمَعْنَ الْمَفْعُولِ وَبِمَعْنَ الْفَاعِلِ It can be understood simultaneously at the same time, both in the meaning of the passive and the active noun. It implies both meanings at the same time. What does that mean? It means both the one who is tested, and the one who is the test for others himself. The one who tests others, and the one who is tested by others. Both meanings are implied within the same noun, the same word at the same time. That's the beauty, the magnificence, and the diversity of the Qur'an. And the Qur'anic language. It means both meanings at the same time. So what does that really mean now? 
It means, oh Allah, do not make us the object of test. Do not make us the object of persecution, of violence, of oppression. From people who are wrongdoing, from bad people. Do not make us tested by bad people. Do not make us the victims of bad people. Which is a very powerful, beautiful dua that Allah do not subject us to torture and ridicule and humiliation and persecution from bad people. It's a very beautiful dua. But at the same time, this also equally implies the opposite meaning. Oh Allah, do not make us the test of bad people. Do not make us such a people that we test the bad people. What does that mean? If we are the believers, if we're the Muslims, and there are disbelieving people, bad people, how are we the test for them? How are we putting them in a difficult spot? How are we creating a difficulty or adversity for them? And the scholars explain that when somebody claims Islam, when somebody calls himself a Muslim, but does not realize and live Islam, then what they say, what they write, what they proclaim, what they announce, what they advertise is one thing. But what they live is something that's the complete polar opposite. And there might be people out there who are lost, who are looking for answers who are spiritually depraved or deprived. And when they see these people saying, Islam, peace, the solution to your problems, the answer to all your questions, guidance for all of mankind, a blessing from God Almighty. When these are the proclamations, but when they observe them in their element, when they watch them, hear them, see them, live with them, and they find the complete opposite. That these are people that are harmful. These are people who lie and cheat. These are people who don't value family. These are people who don't value honesty and trustworthiness. These are not people who serve their community and society. These are not people who respect their neighbors. These are not people who are courteous to others. These are not people who look after the disenfranchised, the downtrodden, the fallen in society. Then now there is a contradiction. And they become a test for those other people. The disbelieving people, the sinful people, the bad people. These people who consider themselves the faithful, the devout are actually now the fitna for them. Because they say if Islam was so good, then the Muslims would have been great. If Islam was so awesome, then Muslims would have been awesome. Obviously there's something missing here. You know what? There's really no difference between me and you. Except your name is a, lot of bit, a little bit harder to pronounce than my name. So then what's the point? What's the point? What do you have to offer that's different? And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us in the Qur'an, twice in the Qur'an, Allah teaches us the dua, رَبَّنَا لَا تَجْعَلْنَا فِتْنَةً لِلْقَوْمِ ظَالِمِينَ Oh Allah, don't make us the test for the bad people. Don't make us that force of evil that will drive bad people away from good. And another place Allah says, Rabbana, He teaches us a dua, Rabbana, our Lord, our Master. Ya Rabb, la taj'alna fitnatan lil kafaru. 
Do not make us a fitna. Do not make us a spiritual test and trial. Do not turn us into a spiritual deterrent, an obstacle from the truth for those people who disbelieve. That they don't come to Islam because of us. It's a really, really sobering reality. It's a very sobering reality. Like we keep track of how many people took, took shahada this week or this month. We keep track of it. We post it on Facebook. We send the newsletter out, an email out to the community. We announce it on Friday. How many people took shahada? Have we ever sat down to think and consider how many people were maybe pushed away from Islam because of me? One of my teachers told me to always ask yourself this question. It's a very difficult question. It's a very bitter pill to swallow. But occasionally, sometimes we need to be able to just look in the mirror and reflect. And check ourselves. That yes, we're very conscious and very quick to record whatever good we've done. How many people we brought to the masjid? How many people accepted Islam this week? How many people this? How many people that? But have we ever stopped, slowed down for a second to take stock of the fact that how many people have we maybe pushed away? How many people have we spiritually harmed? How many people have we ourselves jaded? How many people are disillusioned because of me? Because of me. Again, your community here, inshallah, it's a beautiful, wonderful community. And y'all are probably the exception to the rule. But I can talk about, you know, my own community and other communities that I've experienced or been a part of. One re unfortunate reality, just to give you a little bit more tangible of an example. In some places, in some cities, in some communities, the worst place to live, the worst spot to live, from, now I'm not speaking from a virtuous aspect, I'm talking about from a practical everyday reality. The worst place to live is actually next door to the masjid. I have known non-Muslim neighbors of the masjid who rue the day that a masjid was built next door to their home. Because that was the beginning of just a terrible stretch, of just a complete violation of, you know, courtesy and even their own personal rights. And the, 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 the respect for their personal property. Their, you know, their driveway is getting blocked off. For Salat al-Eid, because somebody is late coming to Salat al-Eid, and it's so important for them to be able to get in there and make Eid on time, that people have actually parked on their lawns, and destroyed their landscaping. That when we decide to have an outdoor picnic, because we are, you know, Khalifatullahi ala al-Ard, we are the bearers of the truth. We are entitled to this, that when we decide to have a picnic outdoors, in the masjid property, that the next morning if you go and look at the front lawn of the neighbor of the masjid, it's littered with napkins and paper plates. Because everybody just threw their trash down and the wind blew it over, and what are you going to do? Absolutely not. Unacceptable. This goes against, contradicts the Qur'an. The lifestyle of the Prophet ﷺ and how the early Muslims understood their Islam. They were a source of khair, a source of benefit. That wherever a Muslim came, wherever a Muslim community came, wherever a house of Allah came, it was a source of benefit, it was a source of such great khair for those people. 
that whether hidayah, guidance, iman was destined or written for them or not, it was undeniable the fact that this was a source of benefit for them. This is our Islam. This is a reality we have to return back to. And we turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, first and foremost, and we say, رَبَّنَا لَا تَجَعَلْنَا فِتْنَةً لِلْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ we make dua to Allah that Allah does not make us a spiritual deterrent for people. And then secondly, we need to make a conscious decision and choice. When we leave the masjid today, be conscious of that fact. How we leave the masjid, how we exit from the parking lot of the masjid, how do we drive around the area of the masjid. I still remember, and I'll end on this particular note, that I remember when I was 20 years old, I was studying overseas, I was visiting back. One of my senior shuyukhin teachers, he was visiting, going around giving lectures in the masajid. It was a month of Ramadan. And I was 20 years old, I was driving him around, as a student, driving his teacher around to the different programs, masajid. And I was driving like a 20-year-old drives. May Allah forgive me. You know, speeding and cutting people off and, you know, trying to catch a yellow but actually running a red and all that nonsense. And he tells me, pull over. Pull over your car right now. So I said, okay. I pulled over. And he said, what's wrong with you? I said, what do you mean? I, I feel great. Jazakallah khair for asking. And he's like, no, how are you driving? You're a talib ilm You're supposed to be a preacher, an imam in your people? A da'i ilallah? An inviter, a caller to Allah, and you drive like this? This is un-Islamic, unprophetic the way that you drive your car. You're, 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 you're causing people harm. You're scaring people on the roads. This even contradicts against Islam. Even the way you drive is Islam. And that was the day that I made that connection and made a huge impact and change in the way I view things. When we leave the masjid today, let's keep in mind, let's try to be a source of khair, a source of good, a source of benefit to people wherever we go. This is the teaching of the Qur'an. This is the legacy of Rasulullah And this is the sunnah of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. The brothers can move forward. Barakallahu lana wa lakum fil Qur'an al-Azim wa nafa'ani wa yaakum bil ayati wa dhikr al-Hakim. Astaghfirullah li wa lakum wa lisa'id al-Muslimin. Fastaghfiruhu inna محمد وعلى أزواجه وذريته اللهم عز الإسلام والمسلمين اللهم انصر الإسلام والمسلمين اللهم اهدنا واهدبنا واجعلنا سببا لمن اهتدى اللهم عنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن عبادتك اللهم احسن عاقبتنا في الأمور كلها وأجلنا من خج الدنيا وعذاب الآخرة اللهم وفقنا لما تحب وترضى وصلى الله تعالى على نبي الكريم I also wanted to remind and request everyone to continue to make dua for everyone all across the world particularly our brothers and sisters who are suffering across the world in Syria in Palestine, in Burma, in Bangladesh, in Mali, Somalia, so many places. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring them peace and safety and help them maintain their iman and their Islam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to practice everything that's been said and heard. Wa aqimi salah.